We're going to be looking at this passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, but before we do that, let's pray together. God, your word is living and active, and we pray now that your spirit would come and take your word and apply it to our heart, and that your word would go forth and not return to you void, but accomplish all that you have purposed for it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the great joys of my job is I get to officiate weddings. I absolutely love officiating weddings. But one of the things that I do with couples before the wedding is I work with them to prepare them not so much for the wedding day, but for marriage. Often there's so much excitement for the wedding day that couples can have a hard time looking past the wedding ceremony. But most newly marrieds will have a moment, and sometimes this happens on the honeymoon, when they realize, they look at each other and like, oh my goodness, <laughs> we've got to live together. How are we going to do this? What happens after the wedding? A few weeks ago, Aubrey preached a sermon in your series on uh, your vision and values on conversion. And one of the images he used is that conversion is like waking up to Jesus. For some of us, that's kind of a quick process. For many of us, it's a long process, but this is a great way to think about conversion, waking up to Jesus and believing the message of his kingdom. But what happens after we wake up? What happens after we believe? Just like after there's a wedding, there's a marriage to grow into. So after we believe in Jesus, there's a new life to grow into. If Christian conversion is waking up to Jesus... Christian formation is growing up into Jesus. And so much of the New Testament is about this very thing. It's about formation. It's about how we grow up individually and together into Jesus. And especially so much of the New Testament letters, these little bitty books towards the end of the Bible, are about this very theme, how do we grow up? Once we have come alive and we've woken up to Jesus, how do we grow up into Jesus? Our New Testament passage from 2 Peter is just one place. It's just one place that's describing what happens as we grow up into Christ. What does it look like? What does it look like to grow up into Jesus? Well, one of the things it looks like is, 2 Peter shows us, it looks like our character being changed. And the word here used for character is the word virtue. So I want us to look at this passage, and we're going to see here that Peter, he reminds us, the church, he reminds us of the source of Christian virtue, he shows us the path of Christian virtue, and then he points us to, or he motivates us with the results of Christian virtue. So look at verse 3, we begin to see the source of Christian virtue. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And here what Peter is doing, he's teeing up this theme that's going to carry with him the rest of this chapter. That is what it looks like, what it means to live a godly life in Christ. He continues on. This comes through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and virtue by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. The British magazine, The Spectator, had a series of articles in the 1930s, and they asked this question, who is the greatest benefactor of mankind? And they had several folks who contributed to the series of articles. And there was one guy named Sir Charles Grant Robinson. 
And he defined benefaction like this. He said, benefaction is a gift which enables me to do something or possibly be something which I cannot do or be without the gift. This is the heart of benefaction. And he says, we shouldn't think of benefactors as just folks who leave a lot of money to great causes. So that's certainly a great example of benefaction. But think about researchers like Louis Pasteur. Think about playwrights like Shakespeare who benefit humanity in ways that go beyond money. That bring resources for healing and resources for inspiration that begin to allow us to do things that we wouldn't be able to do without that gift of benefaction. Christianity is not just about some post-mortem hope, although we believe in the resurrection, and this is central. Christianity is also about living well now. And Peter tells us that the fuel for Christian formation, for living a godly life in Christ, comes from Christ. And it comes from his unlimited, his vast resources. Jesus is the great benefactor we all need to live life well. A benefaction, as Robinson says, is a gift which enables me to do something which I cannot do without the gift. Salvation, new life that begins in Christ, this is a gift. But also formation or discipleship or Christian growth, this too is a gift that comes from Christ. So when we talk about Christian formation, this isn't just about pulling up ourselves by our bootstrap, mustering some internal willpower just so that we can do the right thing. Being formed as a Christian is living in the power that Christ is continually giving us. Being a Christian is living on wealth that is not our own. So what's the key? What's the key that unlocks these vast resources that Jesus is promising us? Well, it's the knowledge. It's the knowledge of Jesus. And this is another way of referring to what happens when we wake up and believe Jesus. We come to know him. And again, for some of us, it's quick. For others, it's, it's, a, it's a gradual process. But nonetheless, we come to know Jesus. And when we do this, when we are alive to Jesus, we have everything we need right now to grow in our faith. So Jesus not only grants us the resources we need to grow, he also grants us promises. Look at verse 4. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The promises of Jesus here are pointing us to the end, that is, eternal life in his kingdom, and Peter's going to circle back to this in verse 11. But they also enable us now, as Peter says, to partake in the divine nature, to share in the very life of God. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about here? This might sound a bit scandalous, partaking of the divine nature. Well, I think we need to zoom out a bit and even go back to the beginning of Scripture. Because the Bible says that we were created to mirror the divine image of God. This is the purpose. This is God's intent for humanity to reflect and to share in God's truth, beauty, and goodness. But sin enters into the world and corrupts this mirror. Think of a mirror that's not only broken, but a mirror that is cloudy, rusty, and muddy. But Jesus comes as the perfect human being, and he restores the image of God in humanity. And Peter says that because of Christ, we can now participate in the divine nature. This is another way of saying that we are being restored to God's original intention to mirror him 
by sharing in his life. So now, like father, like son, like child, there's now to be a family resemblance between God and us. And this is an amazing thing. Jesus has called us, verse 3, by his glory and excellence. And that word there, excellence, is the same word for virtue. That is, he has called us by his perfect character. Now he calls us to mirror his glory and his excellence in our own character. Paul talks about this process in 2 Corinthians, about how we are being transformed from glory to glory. So how in the world can this happen? Well, through Christ, Peter says that we escape the corruption that is in the world. Now, we need to say the problem here is not the material world. Actually, Peter, in this letter, is very pro-material world. In a couple of chapters, he's going to be talking about the final hope of the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. So this isn't some escapist idea here. But the problem is disordered desire. It's sinful corruption. This is the root of the moral problem. But Jesus frees us from corrupting desire. And now we can partake in the incorruptible life of God. Salvation in Christ means an escape, not from the material world, but from the corruption that's marred it and us. C.S. Lewis, he captures this reality so well in The Weight of Glory. He says this, Christ will make the feeblest and filthiest of us all into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. So here, before Peter even starts to tell us the ways in which we should grow, he wants our perspective and our vision of Christian growth to be radically God-centered. To realize that right now, you, I, we have the resources we need in Jesus to live a godly life. This is the source of Christian formation. Jesus himself, his power, his resources, his vast reserve, by which we are restored to participate in the divine nature, reflecting the very character of Christ. So let's look now at the path of Christian virtue. We see this especially in verses 5 through 7, where Peter lays out this path of moral formation. This is what it looks like to begin to reflect the glory and virtue, the glory and character of Jesus. This is a virtue list. So you probably heard as we read this, pas- uh, this passage, we add to our faith virtue and to our virtue godliness and to godliness steadfastness. It's, it's a list of things. And virtue lists were very common in the ancient world, and they're actually common in the New Testament. There's a, there's a few uh, that occur in the New Testament. And what this is, there's this image of cascading virtues, building on one, one on top of the other. But notice here, it begins with faith. We're to add to our faith virtue, and it ends with love. The Christian life is this constant cycle, this dynamic movement from faith to love, from faith to love. Ancient writers like Aristotle wrote a lot about virtue, what it is. And virtue was thought to be, in the ancient world, the proper fulfillment of something. So the virtue of a knife is to cut well. A virtue of a musician is to play an instrument well. Uh, The virtue of a horse is to run well. 
And so what is the virtue of a Christian? Peter has already referred to the glory and excellence. Again, that word excellence is virtue. The glory and virtue of Christ. Christian formation is grounded in the person of Christ. So I think we can say that the virtue of a Christian is to grow in the virtue of Christ, to become more Christ-like. So when Peter says, add to faith virtue in verse 5, he's already teed up for us Christ's virtue in verse 3. Christ is the virtuous one, the one whom we're called to conform our lives to. And so growing in virtue, it comes through this continual encounter with Christ. So how do we encounter Jesus? How do we put ourselves in a place where we are being exposed to Christ again and again? The two primary ways we come to encounter Jesus are through his word and at the table. We're also instructed in the ways of Christ in community. See, Christ is not just the source of the power we need to follow this path of Christian formation. He's also the goal. So let's just run through briefly these virtues that Peter lays out as we seek to pursue Christ in growing in our own virtue. So we add to virtue knowledge. Now, this probably isn't so much about head knowledge. It's sort of knowledge we need to pass the theology exam. This is referring to practical wisdom, the sort of knowledge that we can apply to our day-in and day-out life experience. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers, uh, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This sort of knowledge is about developing a feel for how to act in situations that we face every day, where it's not immediately clear that there's a chapter and verse that we can refer to, where it's not immediately black and white, but we develop wisdom, we cultivate knowledge so that we can act virtuously in the manner of Jesus. Next, we add to knowledge self-control. This is about learning how to govern our appetites. This is about learning how to use good things like food, sex, alcohol, and technology in ways that we're in control and they aren't. Subduing our passions, not letting our passions get the better of us. This takes practice. This takes a conscious effort so that we don't fly off the handle and lose our temple when our kids misbehave or someone makes us mad at work. It's about controlling our emotions, right? It's about learning to say no to sinful desires. So we add to self-control steadfastness. And I think here that steadfastness, this is about playing the long game with Jesus. This word steadfastness occurs 32 times in the New Testament. This is such an important theme. This constant reminder that following Christ is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we have to continually remind ourselves that we're in this for the long haul with Jesus. We're running a long race. Also related to steadfastness is courage. Is this idea that as we persevere, we develop courage and able to stand stiff against winds that come our way. Add to steadfastness godliness. This is about developing a reverence for God in our day-to-day life. There's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which means in the presence of God. And this is a way that writers in the past have sought to describe this idea that we live from every waking hour and even all of our sleeping hours, we are living under the gaze of God. So we'd seek to live our lives with integrity and with a sense of loyalty 
to God. Add to godliness brotherly kindness or familial kindness. This is about learning how to live in community, extending the same sort of love that we extend to spouses and children and relatives, extending that same sort of love to the Christian, uh, Christian community, the family of Jesus. You know, it's interesting, in the early church, pagan critics, one of their critiques of, of Christians is that they called each other brothers and sisters. They just couldn't understand how they were redefining the family. That was super weird to them. And yet, this is one of the calls for those, as we grow in virtue, that we would extend that same sort of love to the Christian community. And of course, this virtue list, it lands on love. This is a climax. This is the climax of the list. This is the chief virtue. You know, we often think of love as, a, as primarily a, an emotion, something that we feel. But here it's interesting is that love is a virtue. It's something that we have to learn to cultivate. We're not told to have warm, fuzzy feelings for each other. But we're told to act lovingly towards one another. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage about love, he talks primarily about not what love feels, but what love does. This is the chief virtue to which we're called. And this is the chief virtue which Jesus emulates for us. Now, i got to be honest with you. I hate going through lists like that in Scripture. If you're like me, you read a list like that and you feel a little bit overwhelmed, maybe intimidated, maybe even a bit defeated as you're thinking through maybe even this past week in your own life, like, ooh, this is not looking so good for me. We need to remember a couple of things. One, how Peter begins this passage. We have been given in Christ the grace that we need to live a godly life in him. But we also need to remember character formation it means practice. Peter says here, make every, did you see it? Make every effort. Many of you I know know this quote from Dallas Willard. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And there's another passage that I think kind of sheds light on this too in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul says, The grace of God has appeared to all people, teaching us or training us to say no to ungodliness and to live a righteous, upright life. You see, the same grace that allows us to wake up to Jesus is the same grace that helps us to grow up into Jesus. And it is all at our um, disposal through Jesus. So we're to practice. Wherever we are, we're to make every effort. But practice implies a process. It takes time. This implies that we're not perfect, right? We will mess up. We will fail. But this also implies we can make progress. By God's Spirit, through the grace of Jesus, you can change. You can grow. I'm 35 years old right now, and if the Lord allows me many, many years ahead, I hope, by God's grace, that I am much kinder when I'm 70, much more patient. I hope that if I live to be 70 or older, some of you are thinking 70 is kind of young. Come on, Blake. Put, put, push it a little further. All right, 95. I hope that by that point, I have developed such a way of living my life, quorum Deo, with a sense of reverence and loyalty to God. I hope God helped me that I'm so much more self-controlled then than I am now. 
But we have to set ourselves on the path. We have to make effort if we're going to get there. Again, we're playing the long game. So if you think of your life right now, if you think, I am just one mess, I don't even know how I can begin. You can if you have Jesus. Get on this path, this virtuous path. Ultimately, we're to practice these virtues in a conscious, very attentive kind of way so that they can become habits. And habits, the accumulation of our habits, this is our character. We hope that as we practice these things, they become second nature. You know, we need virtue not for when things are going well, but for when things are stressful, for when things are not going well, when we're tested, when temptation is meeting us in a moment where we otherwise would be incredibly weak. Uh, You probably remember the story a few years ago or what happened to U.S. Airways Flight 1549. And if you don't remember the actual event that happened, maybe you saw the movie with Tom Hanks, Captain Sully. The flight took off from LaGuardia and immediately hit a flock of geese, and both engines lost power. Every time I get on an airplane now, I'll look out to be sure there's no geese around. (laughs) Captain Sullenberger, in two minutes' time, had to make so many decisions about what to do. Could he go to another airport in the area now that the engines were out? Land on the freeway. That wasn't going to be an option. He realized there was only one option. That was to land in the Hudson River. And in order to do that, he would have to do several things very quickly to maneuver the plane for a water landing. He had to manipulate the speed of the airplane. He had to angle the plane just right before a water landing and pull the nose up at just the right time at impact. And amazingly, Sully did this, and everyone survived. And he was... He was even the last person off the plane, and he even took off his shirt to put it around someone just to um, show everyone how virtuous he was in that moment. <laughs> and if you, you know, if you live like that, then you get to have Tom Hanks make a movie about you. <laughs> what, now, we could think of this as a miracle, and yeah, I mean, it, we can certainly think about it that way, but what was it that enabled Sully to act in a second nature kind of way in a moment when it really counted. He, had, he didn't have time to Google landing a plane on the <laughs> Hudson River, right? What, in, it, in God's providence, a guy like Sully um, was flying that plane, he had trained and trained and trained, not just as a pilot, but he also had an expertise and training on how to glide planes, So in a moment, he was acting on instinct in a second nature kind of way. And for so many of us, we're faced with incredibly tense, high-pressure situations where we don't have time to step back and reflect and think, how am I going to act right now? That's why when things aren't as tense, aren't as high-pressure, we need to consciously consider and reflect on how we are cultivating character in our lives for when we are faced with those circumstances, we'll act in a second nature kind of way. N.T. Wright says this, virtue is what happens when a thousand right choices have become second nature. Don't you want this? Don't you want to grow in this sort of way of living, cultivate this sort of character? Well, Peter 
he, he lands the plane, um, to stick with the airplane imagery here, in verses 9 through 11. And he shows us, really, the results of this path of virtue. Almost, I think, as a way to motivate us and to sort of stoke our imaginations. Look, if you commit yourself to this path, look at, look at the benefits of this. I mean, don't you want to be on this path? Um, verse 9, the first uh, result we kind of see here is Peter's like, look, if, if you're on this path, you're going to be productive. Verse 9, for if these qualities, and that is these virtues he's just mentioned, are yours, and notice he says increasing, if there's growth, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The formation of our character and the knowledge of Christ, this is the path to flourishing. Becoming a virtuous person in Christ's power, this deepens one's knowledge of Christ. But Peter tells us it is possible for us to neglect this path. And he says, if we've neglected this path, it means we've forgotten something key. He goes on to say, for whoever lacks these qualities, again, remember, he's talking to the church here. Whoever lacks these qualities and still names the name of Jesus is blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. This reference to cleanse, this is baptismal language in the New Testament. So baptism is our initiation into the church, into the Christian faith. And baptism tells us that we have been delivered from the corruption of the world, incorporated into the divine nature, and forgiven of our sins. So I think another way to get at what Peter is saying here, for those of us who maybe have stepped off the path and neglected this conscious pursuit of growing in our character, I think another way to get at this is to say, remember your baptism, Christian. Remember your baptism. And even if you are an infant and you can't remember the actual act, you remember that you were baptized. And remember all of those promises that were spoken over you in baptism. That's real. All of those resources that were made available to you at baptism in Jesus, remember that. Remember that you have been cleansed. You have been forgiven. You have been set free. You have been resourced beyond measure with all that Jesus is. Remember your baptism. Now follow this path of Christian formation. Baptism, it marks our initial entry into the kingdom, but baptism also anticipates our final homecoming. Living out our baptismal calling, it means following the path of Christian formation. So look, Peter says, if you're on this path, you're going to begin to be fruitful and flourish. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but this is where fruitfulness is. But you're also going to experience a manner of security. Verse 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, these virtues, you will never fail. Salvation in Christ is by grace. We have been called. We have been set apart for Christ. Remembering that Christ has called us has given us all we need for life and godliness and making every effort to live virtuously. Peter says that practicing these virtues has a way of making us more certain and more sure of Jesus' calling. And I don't understand how all this works. But do you doubt? Do you find yourself doubting? Doubting Christ's love for you, Christ's calling for you. Maybe one way to begin to push back 
is to reset yourself on this path of Christian formation. You'll be productive. You'll flourish. You'll be more secure in your faith. But also, and he saves the best for last, you'll be victorious through Jesus. As we, he uses this word supply, as we supply to our faith virtue, Peter tells us following this path, and I love this, there will be richly, and he says it, this word again, supplied for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. On the one hand, we've entered into the kingdom initially by believing and through baptism. But Peter here, he's anticipating this final entry into the kingdom. This grand imagery, or this grand entrance. And, and, and the Im- image here, I think, is of one running a long marathon and finally crossing that finish line, coming through the, through the tape, and there being this amazing celebration. This is what awaits us. Peter, he wants us to order our lives, to pursue Christ-likeness in a way that anticipates this final homecoming. We're running a marathon, and it's hard. It's really hard. But we're not running in our own strength. We're running in the divine resources that have been granted to us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that they're there for you? And even that final crossing of the finish line, this too is Christ's provision. But there's a sense here in which I think Peter's like, look, this is amazing. Won't you be motivated by this when things are really hard and you don't want to walk the path of virtue? Christian formation is worked out in the present with a view to the end. David Brooks, um, in a book called The Road to Character, he talks about the differences between what we might call resume virtues and eulogy virtues. So resume virtues are all the accomplishments that you put on your LinkedIn profile. And these are important because they help you advance vocationally in your career. Nothing wrong with resume virtues. Eulogy virtues are those virtues that are said about you in a eulogy at your funeral when you die. And we all have some sense that those are much more important than the resume virtues. Here, Peter, I think, is giving us what we could call kingdom virtues. This isn't the only place we can go in the New Testament, but it is a place where we can see this is what the virtuous path looks like as we follow Jesus. After we wake up to him, this is what it looks like to grow into him. And think about how much time we spend worrying about, laboring over the resume virtues. And again, nothing wrong with that. But I think... Peter here, he's saying, won't you apply as much effort, if not more, to these kingdom virtues? Not so that you can get a good job and advance in your career, so that one day in the end, you can be welcomed across the finish line into the kingdom of heaven. We should give conscious attention to cultivating virtue so that these traits become unconscious habits. They become our character. After we believe in Christ, we have been given the power of Christ to cultivate and grow in virtuous living. 
What's the most important thing that you can be doing right now? That I can be doing right now? Following Christ. That's it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And he's given us all we need to do it. So we're called to make every effort to pursue these virtues. And this places us on a path, a marathon course, that leads to a grand finale when we are welcomed finally into Christ's kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.